Hello, welcome to a new episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. This month, I was lucky enough to be able to conduct an interview with one of our authors. Dr Amy O'Donnell has recently published her paper, Impact of the Introduction and Withdrawal of Financial Incentives on the Delivery of Alcohol Screening and Brief Advice in English Primary Healthcare, an Interrupted Time Series Analysis. And I caught up with her to find out more about her research, what they did, what they found, and what an interrupted time series analysis is. Okay, so first of all, can I just get you to introduce yourself? Uh, Yes, I'm Dr Amy O'Donnell. I'm a medical faculty fellow based at the Institute of Health and Society um, in Newcastle University. And we're speaking today because you've got a new paper published in Addiction. Yes. Do you want to tell us a bit about that paper? The paper is looking at the impact um, that financial incentives had on the implementation of screening and brief advice for alcohol use in primary care in England. I am interested in general in how we um, more effectively translate evidence-based practice into routine care. Um, Screening and brief interventions for alcohol are a really prime example of that. We've got decades of positive research evidence um, and yet we know that delivery rates remain um, really poor, um, not just in England but you know, across Europe and the rest of the world. One way that you can um, try and encourage providers to deliver more of a particular kind of treatment or or care is through using financial incentives. Um, This has been done in lots of range of um, kind of medical care. um, And in 2008, they introduced a small financial incentive to try and encourage primary care providers to deliver screening and brief advice. I had actually focused on this topic in my doctoral research, but that was a relatively small-scale, time-limited study where I did a very simple comparison of rates of screening between um, a small number of practices that had received incentives and a small number that had not received incentives. And you could see there that it had a sort of a marginally positive effect. So those that were being paid were, generally speaking, doing a little bit more in the way of screening and advice delivery than those that were not being paid. But I could also see that the levels were still pretty poor. And when I did some qualitative work as part of that study, it became very clear that really, despite incentives, despite publication of NICE guidelines, despite it being quite high up on the policy agenda, um, practitioners were still not really um, prioritising alcohol work um, and weren't really kind of getting what was involved in uh, kind of effective delivery of um, screening and brief advice. I was successful in getting some NIHR School for Primary Care research funding that was going to allow me to kind of follow this up in a much bigger sample um, and really tease out what kind of impact it might have had on on a kind of national basis. Lots of kind of limitations as the scale of the initial study. Um, I used sort of limited numbers of outcome measures really to understand it. So this was going to give me an opportunity to, to look at it in a much more thorough 
they're away. So, I mean, that's, the, that's a bit of the background. Coming on to the paper then, what did you do in this particular piece of research? Um, in this piece of research, we used um, a large-scale um, electronic medical record database, the THIN database, and carried out an interrupted time series analysis using those patient records to try and understand what impact um, both the introduction of financial incentives had had on screening and advice delivery rates. But also, um, it was a really handy natural experiment, if you like, because during my research period, those incentives have terminated. So we had, on the one hand, um, we had the uh, implementation in 2008, so we were looking at what kind of impact it had had. But then at the end of March 2015, the incentives were withdrawn and the time series analysis would allow us to look at whether there'd been a decline in activity rates, as we hypothesised there would be, or whether, you know, the government's aim had been to, I guess, more effectively embed that activity through using these incentives and all the support and training to see if that had really happened. And just before we move on to the results, in terms of your sample, this is data from the UK, that's right, isn't it? It is. It's around 600 GP practices. Um, It's several million Um, patient records. We looked only at newly registered patients because um, the incentive policy targets specifically newly newly registered patients, but it was a a much larger sample than we'd had access to previously. Thin overall is fairly representative of the UK population. I think when we compared it to national population statistics, it's maybe slightly less deprived as a sample, but overall in terms of age, gender, etc. It's a fairly good match. And so what did you find? We found that the introduction of the incentives in 2008 rather disappointingly had a fairly limited and negligible impact on screening rates. There was a, a kind of a small observable rise but really nothing significant changed over that period. I think the most interesting thing was once they were withdrawn, we noticed a really quite rapid decline in delivery rates, which continued in the kind of year and a half after those um, incentives were withdrawn. Um, and in actual fact, it ended up that delivery rates um, were kind of lower than they had been when we, when um, the incentives were introduced in the first place. We, I mean, we were kind of expecting there might be a decline. Um, there's lots of other evidence out there that um, suggested that might be the result, but I think we hadn't quite expected it would be as rapid and dramatic as the data told us it was. And these in- incentives, when they were in place, what did they look like? They were fairly small scale and you know that is part of the problem um, in terms of why it might have had a fairly limited impact. I mean there are lots of other factors that probably contributed to that limited impact but essentially practitioners were paid £2.38 for every newly registered patient that they screened. Those patients that screened positive, so that's using a validated um, screening questionnaire such as audit or audit C, Um, were then obviously meant to go on and get some kind of advice or support. Um, However, the practitioners were not directly paid for delivery of that support. So in comparison to, say, the quality and outcomes framework um, type of medical 
kind of areas compared to smoking cessation advice. It wasn't terribly lucrative for practitioners in comparison to the amount of perceived work involved in kind of setting up and delivering the scheme. And what do you think the implications of your findings are? I think there are several implications. There's, um, I think the immediate implication probably relates to the, um, the sequence scheme, which is the scheme that's um, incentivising providers in secondary care for delivering brief interventions. And that has recently been extended, I think, until next year. I think given the findings that we've demonstrated here, I think there's really a note of caution um, for policymakers in terms of how regularly they monitor and provide feedback to the providers um, involved in that scheme and also to consider what kinds of sort of support structures they've put in place if and when that scheme is terminated because I think the key message that we've got from this paper is the danger of when when you do terminate a scheme that if something hasn't really been effectively mainstreamed there's a real danger that rates will decline to you know an even more lower rate than they were before the scheme was introduced. I think you know there are some wider points to make. As I've mentioned, there's other advice, uh, other research, sorry, that um, relates to what happens when you do withdraw financial incentives. And in general, it seems to suggest that where we are talking about things like preventative lifestyle advice or areas that we know um, already have kind of limited support and take up amongst practitioners, that they're the most likely to um, sort of dip dramatically in delivery rates once you take those incentives away. So in the longer term, I think unless we see really a kind of a sea change in terms of how prevention, substance use prevention, alcohol prevention is thought about within primary and wider healthcare, I don't think that incentives alone are ever going to make the difference that's needed um, to really get this kind of practice effectively implemented. Are there any key take-home messages that you'd like the um, readers of addiction who read your paper to take away from it? You know, it, it is disappointing that we have so much evidence out there um, and yet we just still can't seem to uh, do whatever it is we need to do to get the kind of delivery um, more routine in, in sort of primary healthcare, even though that's where all the evidence suggests this kind of work could be most um, effective. I don't personally think that it's time to sort of throw the baby out with the bath water. I think there's still value in um, doing what we can to um, encourage GPs, nurses, health advisors to deliver preventative alcohol work. But I, I don't think our, that the results suggest that particularly low-level short-term financial incentives are the answer. I think it's at an individual level, still need to, in GP training, etc., you know, raise the profile and the priority of preventative work, of public health work as part of their kind of workload. I think technology, you know, digital solutions may be part of the answer, not the whole answer, but maybe part of the answer. There's um, fairly positive um, evidence for the effectiveness of digital interventions for excessive drinking but I think we need you know there's need for higher level support whether that's in the CCGs in terms of how they prioritize and focus and provide audit and feedback on the delivery of prevention work um, because one thing we have to remember is that um, even though incentives were withdrawn it's actually still part of GP's contractual requirement to ask their 
patients about alcohol. Um, so theoretically, they should be doing it. So, you know, one thing is, well, what happens when they aren't doing it? And is this being monitored? And what kind of feedback are they getting or not getting? Um, I think that's one thing that we need to seriously look at. But we also need to kind of change the culture around prevention and around sort of how we deal with excessive drinking right the way up to dependence. And that's probably um, around tackling the lack of the mention of excessive drinking in the recent um, prevention paper. Um, it's also to do with lack of um, effective levels of funding for alcohol treatment, specialist support. All these factors can um, influence GPs' willingness to actually dip their toes into substance kind of prevention and treatment at all. You know, our study is part of a big kind of jigsaw um, and set of factors that really need to change if we're going to get these very simple, cost-effective, short interventions into routine practice um, and make the difference that we think they could make um, to kind of wider public health outcomes. In terms of the methodology, could you tell us a little bit more about what an interrupted time series analysis is? In an ideal world, um, you know, if you want to test whether something's working or not, you used a randomised control trial. However, in the real world, when we're talking about policy, um, interventions, natural experiments and the like, that simply isn't possible. Interrupted time series are an excellent alternative um, in those situations. Um, there are lots of different statistical techniques you can use to carry out um, an interrupted time series. I mean, essentially, they're looking for whether you can see statistically significant differences in, in rates of whatever your kind of outcome measure of interest is at certain time points. And for us, our time points were you know, the first intervention, the introduction of the incentives, and then the second intervention, which was the withdrawal of the incentives. So we were looking to see whether, um, in statistical terms, it looked like something significant was happening at those time points. There are some limitations with that method. You know, you're using routine secondary data. It isn't trial data. It hasn't been collected specifically for the purpose of your study. You can also only kind of assess what you have available. Our assumption is the amount of data that we had in the time period should allow us to understand whether those interventions that I talked about um, were the things that would have made the difference or not to the rates of delivery. However, we don't know that for sure. So, you know, other major policy initiatives can and were introduced during that time that could have um, contributed to you know, an increase or decrease in delivery rates. When you are using secondary data, there are also lots of um, limitations in terms of, you know, how the practitioners actually kind of collect and record their activity. So you never know 100% are you actually collecting, you know, every single piece of, of data that, that could be there. We use lots of different methods to try and ensure that we had as kind of wide a range of data as we could to represent our outcome measures which were you know um, the rates of patients being screened the rates of patients that were screened positive um, and the rates of those screened positive patients that actually had advice um, we used um, what are called electronic read codes and that's the way that your your GP and your nurse will record kind of every single activity that they do within primary care 
and these are alphanumeric codes that you can search for in these giant database to try you know represents the sort of the activity that you're looking for and we gathered lots and lots of different kinds of read codes that could all relate to those kind of three outcome measures of interest so we did a, a lot of different techniques to try and control as much for some of the limitations of both the method we used and the type of data that we used to carry out the study but you know there are always limitations i think the only other thing i found interesting was when we were looking at the um the kind of the screening rates there were these spikes in september october so you know you'd have the sort of fairly gentle plodding along um, screening rates and then they seem to go up and we sort of thought well you know why could this be um, and we assumed it was new, it was student registrations and then when we did some more kind of exploratory analyses yes it was that kind of age group that there was a, a spike in screenings and screen positives and I think that was both you know interesting in general but also interesting in terms of it really kind of exposes the limitations of designing a policy around screening newly registered patients because they're a very specific population. They aren't necessarily the population that is really drinking in problem ways. You know, we know that younger people are actually drinking a bit less. They drink in very patterned ways. It's probably, you know, your middle-aged drinkers and older that you want to capture. And they're maybe less represented amongst the newly registered population. They're not likely to move and change their practices the rate that young people do. So again, it was another caution around, you know, when you do introduce something like pay for performance and incentive scheme, you have to think very carefully about how you design it. Um, you know, there was, there was a weakness in terms of it only um, rewarding the screening and not rewarding whether people actually got advice, but also that, you know, newly registered patients, it sounds like a really simple way of, of getting at people, but you do potentially miss um, a lot of the population that really you should be looking at helping. That's really interesting. It just goes to show you need to look at your data. Yeah, you do. You need to look at your data and think about things a little bit more and, yeah, and, and evaluate. I think that yeah. was one of the kind of really disappointing things is that the, there's so many of these schemes in government that get implemented and massively, potentially massively expensive, and um, yet, you know, if, unless people um, like me, who are obsessed with finding out what happened, manage to get research funding, we never really know what the impact has been and what the, um, the issues were with that, and yet then they're going straight into the sequence scheme and probably another scheme without really ever learning from what worked didn't work with um, the directed enhanced service well that seems a good place to me to wrap it up mm -hmm. so um dr amy o'donnell thank you so much for your time speaking to us today thank you it's been great speaking with you and there you go i hope you enjoyed this episode do get in touch if there are particular papers or topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes until then bye